Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom, KJ, and James. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz as these four rapid-fire trivia questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. The first question is worth one point, and each question after that is worth one more point. Then we'll follow it up with a theme discussion, this week being what the world thought of the fantasy genre in the 80s. This will be the start of our fantasy films block, where we'll pick a fantasy movie from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s to prepare for the new Dungeons & Dragons film that's coming up soon. Tom, tell us about today's movie. Walking up to the theaters in 1982, we'd have had to choose between E.T., Porky's, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Rocky III, and today's movie, Conan the Barbarian. Nick will be our questionnaire today. Nick, what is Conan the Barbarian all about? If you're looking for a movie from the 80s that puts the fantasy in fantasy, then boy, do I have a movie for you. Join a young Arnold Schwarzenegger and a somewhat younger James Earl Jones as they battle over the power of steel versus flesh. Spoiler alert, Arnold wins. It's time for question one. Whose sword does Conan the Sumerian find in the tomb? Uh, Locked in. I'm shocked Tom knows this. Locked in. Locked in. James, start us off strong. Yeah, it was part of uh, a tomb of skeletons from the Atlantean civilization, but I don't know what the name of the person he took the sword from was. KJ. Yeah, same answer. It's not Cull. It's one of the kings of Atlantis, but I don't think it's a specified king of Atlantis. Tom? Is it Crum? The Earth God. It was Crum's sword. He literally yeah. says, Crum. Yes. P- possibly Crum's sword. <laughs> yes. We, we, he identifies it as Crum's sword. Mm. Yeah. So I'm going by Conan's mm. identification, mm. even if it was a little unclear. Um, if I think the movie's it. indicating that, yeah, yeah, this is Crum. He's the inheritor of Crum's whatever. Um, and and that's totally cool. IMDb says it's absolutely not Crumb. It's an Atlantean god. But oh, really? really? He says it's Crumb's sword. Mm, he just is thanking Crumb for the steel. Like oh. no, he he says a, no, a number of times in the movie. He says Crumb, and I think you know because that's his god. I read that half the time as him saying like Oh God, like an exclamation. Oh, I see. You're like oh yeah, okay. Like, I, Jesus, you know? Yeah. I got the impression he w- that was supposed to be him thinking that was Crumb's sword. Because it's Crumb steel? I think he thinks that mm. it's his Crumb sword. That's the impression I got as well. That's a, Because Crumb, we know, is buried in the earth. That's the myth, right? These sky gods bury him in the earth and they forget about him? Or is it man buries him in the earth and forgets about him? This is ambiguous at best. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'd have to go back and see what what his father said to him about the uh, that legend in that very first scene in the movie. Yeah, it's that he's buried in the earth and is forgotten about, and they remember him, and that's that's why steel is this great metal and doesn't lie to us. 
How did you know to look that up ahead of time, by the way? Oh, I always read the IMDb ahead of time. Oh, uh, uh, uh. I think I have to disqualify my own question. Oh. Because, because the best I'm going to see here is that it is an Atlantean sword, as other people said it. So like how there's an Atlantis in this. <laughs> this basically this desert. We spend the whole time in like a prairie desert, right? It's You know what, though? I can't disqualify the question. I just have to reassign the points because <laughs> both KJ and James correctly did say an Atlantean sword and the questionnaire was incorrect on the answer. So Tom, I apologize for stripping your point and, and assigning mm -hmm. the points to KJ and James because uh, yeah, I think they are correct. I took it as him announcing it as from sword but i i think the the fact checkers of the world have proven otherwise it's time for question two aside from snakes what is the animal most likely to have been harmed during the making of this film locked in locked in locked in kj start us off like the last question i'm gonna go with what nick thinks the animal darn that right most well nick to... was wrong on the last one so <laughs> I, know. I don't know now i'm nervous oh this is unequivocal i will not be fact checked on this there, there, there is one answer on this uh well okay i'm gonna say buzzard but the one he bites is mechanical <laughs> <So>. <laughs> no it's not a buzzard it's not buzzard i think james i think james is locked in uh tom you're next right i would say horses horses get thrown all over the place no. James, bring him to the promised land. A camel. It is definitely a camel. For some reason, he decides to punch a camel in the face. That's right. Oh, yeah. yeah. He uh. knocks a camel out. So <laughs> I saw that scene and it made such an impression on me that I got curious. How hard do you have to punch a camel to knock it out? So I Googled that. I did research on this. <laughs> and I said, mm. how hard do you have to punch a camel to knock it out? And Google was like, what? what are you, what's, what's wrong with you? I don't know. Even Google so, didn't have an answer. Yeah, even Google was like, dude, you got you to gotta get some rest. I, I don't know why you're asking <laughs> that. So I, I actually started looking into it more. And I didn't have an answer for that. So I, I you know, tried, well, I figured a horse is close enough. I couldn't find an answer for a horse. But I did find that the kick of a horse to the face of another horse is often, if placed correctly, exactly how hard it takes to knock a horse out. Often horses will knock each other out by accidentally kicking one another in the face. So I said, okay, how hard does a horse kick? In terms of Newtons, it is 10,000 Newtons of force. What? An average horse kick. So I figured, okay, well, how does that translate to a human punch? A pretty strong guy is going to be able to punch at about 2,500 Newtons or more. So wow. Conan the Barbarian is can punch at least four times harder than the average person. <laughs> now, you have to adjust for the fact that a camel's face and jaw is smaller than a horse's. My calculations were equine-based as opposed to chameleon. But the, the answer to that question is Conan can punch about four times harder than the average man. 
What I love is there was no setup where James had any idea that this would come up, but he just decided to do independent research for his own edification on this matter. But I'm glad he did for all our knowledge. Yeah, that, that's what I did instead of working that day. <laughs> it was just a ridiculous scene to me. Like, I, I know he was like trying to find his way. And he maybe had a little bit too much to drink, but there's like no like setup. He's just walking down the street and decides to punch this camel in the face. I love that analysis. It's time for question three. Supposedly, how old is Thulsa Doom? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. KJ, start us out. Well, you had pointed out that Arnold Schwarzenegger was young and James Earl Jones was young. I have no idea. Um, 300 years old? I would say a 1,000 years. Uh, I think somebody said, you know, rumor has that he is over a 1,000 years old. The points are going to go to both Tom and James. Thousands of years or 1,000 years. So something in that realm. I think they may have implied it might have been older than a thousand years, but we're in that language. So yeah, he's he's pretty old if that's true, mm. which I don't think it's true. Does anyone here think that's true? They were eating human hands. That makes you live forever if you eat human hands? In the Hiberian age. The guy can transform into a snake. Him being a thousand years old isn't even the most surprising thing about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how he lived that long. He just slithers away when there's trouble, you know? <laughs> He also does describe killing Arnold Schwarzenegger's parents or Conan's parents as when he was young, which must have only been 20 years earlier. So if you're a thousand years old, would you describe 20 years of uh, a 20 year period as being young? I think he's a snake oil salesman. I think he's just making up a dialogue and story. He's He's a a snake oil salesman. You see where I went with that? Yeah, that's how I was going there. There's no doubt he has magical abilities. He does turn into a snake. So right before our eyes. And can turn snakes into arrows. A lot of his magic seems snake-based. Snake-based. Yeah, you know, snake-based magic. Heavily specialized. Definitely Slytherin, you know. <laughs> does he always have those eyes? Or is it just in that one scene? It changes. I think it's just it in changed. that one scene. Mm-hmm. They show him in one screen, they go off, then they show him kind of evolving, and they do that a few times. Yeah, they just cut to varying degrees of transformation. Yes, yes. So I question the thousand years old, just especially with Tom was saying in his younger days. It's time for question four. What is the name of the location in which Conan beheads Thulsa Doom? Where's Thulsa's HQ? What's it called? Four-pointer, you know? I'll lock in. I have a name, but I, I think I've mixed it up with the name of the era. Snakes are us. <laughs> that was the first thing that jumped into my head, Tom. But now I can't get the James L. Jones New York telephone ads out of my head. Oh, If yeah. my right foot is in New Jersey and my left foot is in New York, it will cost an <laughs> arm and a leg for them to call each other. Um, <laughs> locked in. Not many people are going to get that. <laughs> I think it holds up anyway. No, I know. No, but I'm just trying to think of like, 
how what age that <laughs> and location separates people what do you mean long distance <laughs> yeah i mean i'll lock in i have no idea okay james tell me what your no idea is i, I mean i i was gonna say the temple of the snake i had aquileonia aquileonia kj temple of dune KJ is probably the closest. It was the mountain of power. It was oh. just such a cheesy name. So thinking no one would get that. I have a bonus question. But didn't James win? <laughs> oh, wait. James didn't win. Darn it. Can I still do my bonus question? Sure. Sure. Congratulations, James. How would you like to hear a bonus question? That's your prize. I would love to. Okay. For no points, even though I'd like to give points. What did Conan eat in the forest when he was four or five, 20 years ago? He says a story of when he was hunting with his father as a boy, preparing for the big battle in that weird place with the rocks and the dead bodies around him. Are we locking in or are we just shouting out our... You can shout out. Yeah. I just thought it was like a funny... Was was it blueberries? Quip. KJ, it was wild blueberries. I just don't know why. Like, it was just something like random. Like, we're about to prepare for battle against this snake cult. I recall when I used to eat wild blueberries in the forest. Me and my father would eat wild blueberries in the forest. Like, See, was... if you think back at all the questions I asked, it's pretty absurd that these all were part of the same film. <laughs> <laughs> that was the point of my series of questions. Somehow these were all interrelated. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get back from these brief messages. Join another Talking Studios production, Limited Lexicon, where we play through text-based adventure games. Text-based adventure games were computer games from before computers had graphics. The game uses text to describe a scene, and the player types back how they want to interact with the game. I'll read the text from the computer, and my co-host will feed me commands. This season, we're playing through The Hobbit from 1982 on the ZX Spectrum. Here's a quick sample. I thought uh, a lot about our first command, and I think it should be no print, because we don't want to print things as we're going along. I think by default, it's not going to print. And even <laughs> if I did print, I, where is it going to print to? 1982? <laughs> I would imagine if we go west, we're going to be south of the troll, right? Just south of the troll land. Yeah, let's try it. You go west. The troll's clearing. The visible... Oh, <laughs> we died. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The troll, the troll saw us and killed us. So I think we have to say the answer to the riddle then. The answer is dark. Say dark, I think. Talk to what? Golem. Gollum. Say Gollum. Dark. You talk to Gollum. Thorin says, hurry up. And we died. And we died. So we went northeast last time. So let's go southwest. You go southwest. Visible exits are north, northwest. You see the valuable golden ring. Oh. Wow. Wow. Wait, wait, wait. That's oh, perfect. That's wow. perfect. Limited lexicon. Coming to your podcatcher and YouTube in late 2022 by Talking Studios. And we're back. 
what a wonderful ride this movie is. Let me tell you, whether you love it, you hate it, you love to hate it, you hate to love it. There's a lot going on in this film. And I thought it was quintessential what people thought of swords and sorcery in the early 80s. There definitely is some, I don't know, residue from the 70s, especially with the cult antagonist. But I just wanted to explore this one. I, I, I know there's not a lot of other shows that may decide to dust this one off. So we, we had to be the one to bring it back into the zeitgeist. <laughs> it seems like it's very different from other fantasy movies in terms of the aesthetic, because there doesn't seem to be, it seems different from other fantasy movies because the aesthetic is different. We don't really have a forest scene so much. It's much more of a prairie or desert, a, a sort of flatland scene. And we also don't have a lot of the standard fantasy tropes that places like Lord of the Rings introduce and the 70s had a kind of Lord of the Rings revival in their cartoons and what have you. So you don't have fantasy monsters like dragons or, or anything like that. It's really about men going up against men. And and Doom, our villain, is somewhat a fantastical person because he could turn into a snake. But his fantastical abilities don't seem to matter very much. He doesn't him turning into a snake doesn't really help, but it seems. Snake or, arrows have a big impact snake, on the plot. Yeah, the snake arrow does have a big impact on the plot, sure. So there's a bit of a, a kind of magical element there. Is using snakes as arrows an economically feasible strategy? Like, don't you think it would be cheaper to use arrows as arrows? Like, I, I guess if you just have, like, in theory, an unlimited amount of snakes that you could just keep using as arrows... It's okay, but you already have something that's extremely useful as an arrow. It's 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 called an arrow. It <laughs> flies better than a snake because it's made to get shot from a bow, whereas a snake is a, a, a snake. And like I maybe he makes the argument, well, the snakes are poisonous, but like it's the Iborian age. Like if you get shot by an arrow, you're gonna die. It's not, <laughs> no, it's not like you you have to have the power of a snake to effectively kill somebody. There's no medical technique. And wouldn't it be easier to just take the snake poison and put it on said arrow? Well, yeah. I mean, if you're really married to having poison-tipped arrows, like that's you feel like it's not going to work unless it's a poison-tipped arrow, then like, all right, fine. Yeah, just take the because then you could use one snake and poison tons of arrows rather than just using you know one snake per shot. I mean, this is like there's no sense of economic scale in this guy's like weapon. What is the price of wood out there? I didn't see too many trees except for the one that they used to. <laughs> but, uh, all right. I, you know, I suppose, um, you know, there's a limited amount of wood, but there's got to be a limited amount of snakes too, right? Like, what do snakes eat? Because you got to raise the snake to a certain age. Well, I, yeah. Cheap. And that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, if you're talking about like an economy of scale, so the snake, you know, eats mice and the mice eat, uh, wood so i guess you're kind of back like back where you started on that one <laughs> mm -hmm. she's a witch <laughs> <laughs> but there seems to be a much more invested in this sort of masculine ideal right so this it's this kind of um celtic warrior anglo-saxon type uh, or even norse type of of manliness that's being thrust into the spotlight it's not so much about that kind of uh, 
kind of collection of fantasy characters doing fantasy things in a in a woodland setting. Doesn't he even reference Valhalla or something very similar in sound? Yeah, he mentions that he has to make Crumb happy so he can enjoy his time in Valhalla, which is taken, you know, obviously directly from from the prose Edda from Norse mythology. So they seem to be drawing on that as well. Um, some of it apparently, like the original comic books are drawing on Celtic cultures, which would be a slightly different warrior culture than than what we're seeing there. Maybe even Celtic Spain, that type of thing. But um, yeah, d- definitely Valhalla is is Norway or, or Norse. So Wikipedia says Conan is considered low fantasy. I know we've talked about low fantasy and high fantasy before on the on the show. Um, but well, again, Wikipedia says Conan is low fantasy because magic is kind of minor and there's no formal rules about it. So it's it, it exists in the world, but it's not formally used by everybody by this rule set um, as in what they call high fantasy. And I think that's true for a lot of 80s fantasy, right? That rules of magic weren't a big part of 80 movies fantasy. Not everyone's throwing fireballs around. There's one guy in this whole... Well, actually, two. Hold on. There's two. The witch or whatever. She was a witch or spirit or whatever. She had some fantastical things going on from the hut early on in the film. Yeah, right. Demon. And, and um, Mako, the wizard, he was able to call demons and stuff. Was he able to or was he just around them? Like that? I think he was... Well, like, he had healing powers. Yeah, he healed Conan with oh, those oh, demons. Oh, right. Okay. Whatever. I thought it was just like this place has a lot of demons. As long as we can protect him from them taking him this night, he'll be okay. But maybe I know what you're saying all the glyphs that he was putting on him. Mm. I didn't know if that was more spiritual versus actual power. But there could be an argument in either direction. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I can, I guess clarify this a little bit. Um, Conan the Destroyer. He's a bigger character in that movie and he's unambiguously a wizard in that movie with uh with powers that he uses oh. a lot same actor i was gonna say believe it or not i've seen this movie a ton of times i've never seen the sequel <laughs> well one spoiler alert for the sequel he apologizes to the camera <laughs> <laughs> I'm, that, I'm not joking and the camel's family and wife and child there is a scene where he returns to the city and apologizes to the camel I'm wait not you're joking. not even joking i'm not that is not a joke <laughs> wow so the that, camel survived that I, you know what i'm not even i'm not even going to tell you how the scene plays out but i promise you it's there Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i suppose it's low fantasy because it doesn't have these strong rules and the rules aren't structuring a lot of the conflict. But I also think the low fantasy title has to do with not everyone is a magic wielder, right? Isn't that part of it? Like high fantasy, everyone could be flinging fireballs and ice and whatever, where here it's a select group within society. Unless I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure that's part of that. Yeah, that I don't know. I, I thought it had to do with the the rule set and okay. Um, if if there's a science to the magic, then you're at high fantasy. If there's if magic just seems to come out of nowhere and does what it does for whatever the narrative purposes are, that seems to be what low fantasy is. Hmm. 
There are some tropes, though, in this film, and it's not the ones you normally see, just like Tom was saying. The thief. A lot of this is centered around a thief. So how did they even get involved with the snake cult? It was really to steal something that was precious in their tower, and that's how Arnold slash Conan meets his love interest. But they're thieves, so it's not necessarily this like honorable knight going to war to prove his valor for his lord. It's like, no, we're just trying to make a living and take shiny things. And even how they become in service of the king, which is Osric the Usurper. His daughter is in with this snake cult, and he's like, yeah, I'll give you all the gems you want, which is not what we thought was going to initially happen there. We thought they were in trouble. So because of their thiefdom, <laughs> they go on this journey and he finds out, oh yeah, that's actually the guy who beheaded my mother. So I'm going to behead him. He does have a code of chivalry and a lot of it seems to be connected to proving his manliness though. It's hard to determine what his code of chivalry is vis-a-vis, -vis, let's say women, right? That you see with the Knights of the Round Table. But it is very clear that he has to prove his fighting spirit before Crumb in some way. And it's this, this sort of tag of, do you want to live forever? You have to risk your life in these endeavors. And so they have the possibility of running away with the money, and they don't. Or at least he doesn't. He decides to leave behind his, his girlfriend, his common law wife but you know whatever she is and and go on after the after rescuing the daughter and it doesn't seem to have anything to do with the virtue of the daughter oh it's just straight up revenge he says it's but it's revenge but it's also then he's in a culture of revenge right because once you get revenge that has a sort of metaphysical reward you get to go to valhalla you get to prove your value before crumb so there's there's more to it than just thievery at least more to conan or at least conan has to get beyond being the thief right he's destined for greater things than that oh definitely i agree with that 100 i'm saying the other people he comes across that aid him on his journey that's what drove them together is that element but he is the barbarian if we're looking based on fantasy tropes he definitely still is a barbarian he never truly was just a thief if that's where you're going with this i 100 agree but the other one we saw was the thief i'm just trying to think of other things we have a magic wielder who just turns into snakes and makes arrows out of or snakes arrows out of snakes <laughs> uh, then you had his henchmen right they were just muscle right they, were, they didn't have any fantastical abilities right i don't think so no, one of them. One of them was a former uh, Mister Universe, right? Or that was one of the Snake Gods henchmen. No, so they were. One was a former player for the Oakland Raiders. He was the high priest one with the broken nose kind of guy. The other was a former world strongest man from Iceland. He was, was the one with the big warhammer, right? Yes. Oh, wasn't yeah. Franco Colombo in this? Franco Colombo was in it but he was a uh he wasn't either one of them um oh, okay. i tried to look for him and i didn't see which one he was so i think he was just some nameless soldier in a fight scene or something he played the camel 
<laughs> he can take 10,000 newtons. <laughs> we have one objective for this role. <laughs> I also say Conan, in addition to being a thief class, if we're trying to throw classes around here, he's also the warrior class, no doubt about it, for a lot of this movie. Of course. Right? Before he's a thief, he's fighting in the pits as a warrior. As a barbarian as well, no? Barbarian warrior. There was another actor of note that was in Conan the Barbarian, and it's none other than King Osric the Usurper. Do any of you know who he yeah, is? Yeah, it's Max von Sydow. Yeah. From what is he... uh, episode seven. To you, she's military. To me, she's royalty. I actually was going to reference something else, but that is also true. He played chess against death. Yeah. No, I was going to reference the Three-Eyed Raven. In Bill and Ted, Tom? Wait, what? No, in the original movie, in The Seventh Seal. He's the star of The Seventh oh, Seal. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> no, but I, I was referring to a more recent take, but you're not wrong with what you said, KJ. I was referring to Three-Eyed Raven in Game of Thrones. Oh, I didn't realize that. He's uh, the guy in the yes. tree that Bran visits? Yes, that's him. Oh, yeah. I can see it now. Yep. And I, I only read... thought that was interesting because he looked really old as King Osric, <laughs> but that was a long time ago. I just watched him in a movie from the 50s. Wow. He just, he passed away in 2020. Mm -hmm. 1929 to 2020. What did you see him in from the 50s, Tom? The Virgin Spring. It's another Igmar Bergman film. Oh, was it thrilling? It's a revenge movie. So then he gets <laughs> revenge on the... Very slowly, I imagine. It's a, it's a slow, slow movie. Yeah, it's, you know, um, he's not playing chess with death in this movie, but, you know... <laughs> <laughs> it, might, it might as well be it's a it's a slow one but it seems to be the the thing that i found interesting about it and james you're touching on this is that this unapologetic masculinity thing is that the movie kind of starts with this frederick nietzsche quote what doesn't kill me makes me stronger that was going to be a question how does that i don't want to say how does it fit in because i get how it fits in but it just seems so random for like a I different universe you don't of think fantasy. it's random at all no i, I don't but I'm saying yeah. to tie it into fantasy, like it's not in world, it's in our world. But sorry, I, I had to jump in there. <laughs> it isn't, yeah, it is in our world. It's not in this Atlantis, this dusty Atlantis world, I guess we're in. The um, Hyborian age. Hyborian age, okay, yes. Yeah, Robert um, E. Howard measures time in terms of when Atlantis sunk into the ocean. <laughs> Apparently, that that's his, that's his death of Christ. That's his clock for eras. Mm-hmm. Is when Atlantis and is Atlantis a utopian space? Is that what it is? They make really good swords, I hear. <laughs> yeah, that that I don't know. Mm -hmm. I I'd heard uh, Robert Howard, the creator of Conan, he was very into history and wanted to include it, but didn't feel his library had enough books on history, so he put it right before our history, but after Atlantis's history. That's why it's okay. in the high period. That's why. That's the Hiberian Age as a, a bridge between that. Okay. But this is not the history of the English uh, people. Oh, so. Nick, you should have seen what I was reading about Tolkien. He used to fight people about that. I get now after that episode, I, I've done a little <laughs> bit more research and I, I kind of get where you're going with that. I was also confused by the crucifixion scene in this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Any, well, that's the whole the like, Jesus complex. No, that's like like on the money, no? 
Well, I would think that you wouldn't want a Jesus complex. Right? right. Like if, if he's this like Nietzschean Superman who's undo who's, you know, giving us these, or maybe he's not a Superman or whatever, but he's like, you know, one of these uh, Homeric hero types. Wouldn't he not be a Christian type? Yeah, I also was confused. <laughs> well, so I don't know, we want to get into this, but um so Robert E. Howard made Conan, but he also made another character called Krull. Mm-hmm. And in the Conan comics and short stories, he's never enslaved. Um, he is a thief, but he's more of a pirate. And he's, uh, I don't know that his family is killed like it is in this, but that does happen to Krull. So this also is more of a Krull story. Again, guys, I'm just. Krull is a year later, too. Well, the movie Krull, I don't think has anything to do with the Robert E. Howard oh. characters. <laughs> but, but that I don't really know. You think they just leveraged a lot of that? Well, I, I think for Conan, they took way more inspiration from Robert E. Howard's character, Krull. And then Krull, I don't know if it, I, I don't know that much about it, but it was a great movie, guys. That I recommend. But you did see it? Yeah. It was <laughs> it was good all the way through. <laughs> yeah, I just I didn't get the crucifixion. I thought that it, well, I get it in the sense of now he's being reborn to become the That's man. all I yeah, saw, the, the blah, rebirth. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the reborn, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it's it's an odd... He was the thief, and now he's the warrior. It's an odd... Like, you have this really, like, balls-out masculinity, like, big, balling men doing men things, and steel is all you trust. Bringing Christian iconography into that is weird because it's not it's not what kind of christian iconography lends you to it doesn't lead you to the conclusion of crush your enemies and have their women run out in front of them or whatever it is he says what does he say what's his quote oh uh, what is best in life <clears throat> to crush your enemies to see them driven before you and to hear the lamentation of the women well, you know, all the transitions in this movie were rough, right? <laughs> he, he's he's fighting in the pits, and then all of a sudden it's night, like outside of a circus or something, and the guy breaks his chains and is like, you're free, right? There was no reason for that. There was no lead up to that. It was, we need you to be free That's now true. for the narrative. Like, all these short stories were very crudely stitched together, right? He's mm-hmm. with the girl, he's with the girl, he's with the girl. Oh, wait, he needs to be by himself for this next part of the movie, so he's not with the girl anymore. She did. <laughs> Well, no, even before she dies, right? They're like oh, together, oh. and then he leaves her the stone or whatever. But there was no reason she shouldn't have gone with him, or she should, he should have stayed. Like there was no build up to that. Narrative wise, they were very disjointed sections of the movie. So I think the, the crucifixion, I'm assuming, came from another short story of Robert E. Howard, and they wanted to put it in the movie. Here's where it roughly fits. So we transitioned here, and, right? But the the Nietzsche thing makes a lot of sense because Nietzsche has this idea of the there's this era where men were great which is the homeric era so the it wouldn't even be the homeric era actually it would be the the people homer is writing about so ulysses and um well uh, ulysses and odysseus are the same person uh um but you know like achilles and, and those people and it's this kind of warrior class where you proved your value in who you were able to defeat in that kind of unapologetic bravery. And there's this sort of, you know, this, this kind of bronze age fervor to, to the men there. And 
the morality that replaces that, this kind of slave morality, as Nietzsche talks about it, is this idea of the meek shall inherit the earth, right? That, that this is a problem This for Nietzsche because we're losing that pagan spirit that existed before decadence. You know, Nietzsche thinks the really Plato introduces, but the Christians really introduce this sort of uh, decadence that celebrates humility. And, you know, what, it seems like the director here, uh, John Milius, who is the, uh, James, you were telling me this, he's the basis of um, John Goodman's character in The Big Lebowski, the director yes. of this film. <laughs> yeah, Walter Sobchak was based on John Milius. Yeah. Apparently. That, yeah, apparently John Milius is, it seems to be, he's looking for a sort of, a sort of pre-Christian masculinity, right? like a Homeric Nietzschean, you know, thing in which we don't become meek or humble ourselves, but we become strong. And, and when we endure conflict, we endure it bravely. We're encouraged to endure conflict because in so doing, we become even more. I see how the quote relates, just like I was saying before. I just find it interesting to be included within a fantasy setting right before when they like explain the world and the setting and everything like that it just sometimes takes me out of it when you bring our world into a fantasy genre but it does make sense thematically mm. well no explanation required for the strength of james i'd like to once again congratulate our winner of the week james well done Yay! <laughs> even when i didn't tally up all the points you still won <laughs> <laughs> James, Indeed. always a pleasure to have you mm. on, my friend. Thank you all very much for having me. Great to see all of you again. We only bring you on for the classics. Well, that that's what I'm here for. <laughs> so I, I utterly refuse to comment on or even watch a movie unless it features Arnold Schwarzenegger punching Cadillac. <laughs> I thought you were going to say unless it was in my two garbage bags worth of VHSs. <laughs> I... Actually, I thought of that story when I watched Conan because I was like, you, you know, you never told me that was in there, but I was like, this oh, is such a Nick garbage bag movie. Yes. Like, this is so in the wheelhouse of it what was. kind of VHS I imagined yeah. would be in that garbage bag. Running but I do think about and, it. Yeah, oh, yeah. Go. Now, this yeah. is like, I'm imagining like Running Man, Conan the Barbarian, uh, uh, Aliens. Might have uh, been one of the aliens, yeah. Road Warrior. Crow. Oh, definitely. No, Road Warrior was in there, yeah. for sure. But I, I think I said this last time, but it bears saying again. This is the only story I've ever heard of a young boy finding two empty, abandoned garbage bags full of homemade VHS tapes and taking them home and watching all of them that had a happy end. I was gonna say 90% of that. Story, I thought you were like, expecting oh, a bunch no. of VHS with happy endings. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, do you have the list? We should do a, a run on it. I don't, and I'm sure my dad has thrown them all out now. Some other boy has found them. <laughs> and so, and no, so no, it was literally two on. like two paper bag, like, you know, paper bag, really more like shopping bags than garbage bags, but like two paper. I remember they were like two paper uh, full, full of VHSs. I could tell you exactly where it was, what house it was in front of, uh, like on towards the bottom of the hill on Bergen Ave. Yep. Yep. 
Uh, and I, I and I brought them to school and they sat in the classroom all day. And then I brought them home and started watching them all. <laughs> yeah, I, I will tell you the 90s was a different time. Yeah, you can't roll into an elementary school with two trash bags <laughs> on VHS tapes and have your teacher be like, yeah, that'll work itself out. It's okay. That checks out. <laughs> <laughs> You can rate and review this show anywhere podcasts are available. For those viewing in YouTube land, if you haven't already, please like this video, subscribe to the Talking Studios channel for all our exciting content, and follow us on Twitter at Talking Studios. Check out other shows by Talking Studios, including Keep Making Movies, where we explore micro-budget films, Limited Lexicon, where we play through text-based adventure games, and Get the Point, where we slowly reveal a movie poster and try to guess which movie poster it is. Got a question for us? Call the Talking Studios hotline at 201-467-8679 and leave a message. It may be featured on a future episode. And if you haven't already, Please subscribe to Talking Pictures Trivia wherever fine podcasts are found. Join us next time when we discuss a fantasy movie from the 90s, Princess Mononoke from 1997. Stay tuned for our first impressions of this film. Ding, 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 ding. Wow, Talking Studios. Next week, we'll be discussing Princess Mononoke from 1997. Tom, how was your watch? This is my first watch. I'm not very well versed in Studio Ghibli, and this might be my own, only my fourth film from that production company. And I enjoyed it well enough. I have to say, of the four I've seen, um, The Flying Castle or House Flying Castle, Up on Poppy Hill, this, and Spirited Away, I still think actually Up on Poppy Hill is my favorite, and I'm probably an outlier in that regard. Uh, just because that's the one realistic one and uh, of the four I've seen and I actually find it the most touching. Very often, I, I think in the other Studio Ghibli films, what happens is that these really intriguing fantasy elements or characters are introduced over and over and over again. We get more and more and more of them. And after a while, I sort of maybe disconnect from the plot a little bit while with up on poppy hill i found the relationship between the male and female characters so intriguing that i was constantly staying with it despite the fact that it, it's rather unusual in the fact that it doesn't employ fantasy tropes in any way this film i'm somewhat in between i think what worked for me is that it had a kind of folktale sort of effect in the sense of the forest elements were the fantastical elements and it had the you know you can almost imagine a, a sort of Grimm's brothers sort of reality going on here where the forest um or even a greek myth reality where the forest comes alive or natural elements take on humanoid or humanistic forms in order to express something about the condition in which the forest is in, namely being overrun by these, these iron merchants. And for that reason, I think this ended up being my second favorite. I actually liked it a lot more than, than Spirited Away. Um, and, and so that was my experience with this. I still found a lot of the, the Ghibli stuff, I will 
I will honestly say a little self-indulgent. I, I, I found that a lot in the case of Spirited Away and a little bit here. Um, but what I did love about this movie was the incredible sympathy the filmmakers have for all the characters, even the characters who are damaging the environment, normally the bad guys, the Cruella de Vils of, of these types of works. However, here, they're, especially the main female character who in the American version is voiced by Minnie Driver has a deep investment in the people who she employs. And that made her much more sympathetic and it made the film much less simple than I thought it was going for. And, and that's really what I enjoyed about it. Matt, how was your first watch? I watched this movie probably around the time that it came out. It was one of my first exposures to Japanese animation that I really took to. Um, I, I grew up around, you know, mainstream anime uh, of like Dragon Ball Z or um, I guess Pokemon towards the end there. But I didn't really, I didn't latch on to the anime aspect of it. I didn't really get into, I'm not into anime uh, in that regard, but I have it, I have taken to the Studio Ghibli movies. And so I watched Princess Mononoke first. And then that kind of, I, I've just enjoyed all of the work that that studio's put out. Uh, I actually am partial to Spirited Away, um, but I really, really um, enjoyed this one. And, and for some of the reasons you mentioned, Tom, I really liked uh, that the, the I guess, bad characters, you, you can't really consider bad because it's not as black and white as, you know, most animated movies that you get. Uh, there is some nuance and some complexities to everyone's living circumstances, which usually Studio Ghibli or at least Miyazaki introduces in his films. There's common common themes of, you know, environmentalism, um, war, all, all those themes that you you are that are that make Miyazaki movies Miyazaki movies to me, uh, that are just kind of that they're involved somehow. Um, but I really really liked this one. I like, uh, as far as Miyazaki goes, the way that you're kind of immersed in the cultures that are introduced in those movies. And so you kind of feel like you're part of the town. Um, there's, there's sort of, they do some sweet stuff with scoring and, um, I don't know, it, it just makes for an intimate experience. And so as far as, uh, my experience with Princess Mononoke, I, I really, I felt that with with the cultures that they introduce here, um, as well as the forest, and yeah, I I I was all in at this point with Studio Ghibli, so I'm I'm a fan of this movie and a fan of his other work, and I'd love to hear KJ your impressions of Princess Mononoke. Yeah, just like you, Matt, this was my first Ghibli movie. Um, I woke up one night, I was in middle school, maybe early high school, and Cartoon Network was actually pretty new at the time. And I had turned it on, and this movie came on in the middle. I had no idea what it was, but I was like, this is this is like nothing I've ever seen before. I, I don't know that I had seen any anime before Mononoke. Um, and then my future wife, Rachel, who's been on the show, uh, after college, we took a job teaching English over in Japan. So we took some Japanese lessons. And during the Japanese lessons, they put this movie on as an example of a movie to watch in Japanese with English subtitles to help learn the language. And it, it was that many years. I'm like, oh, this was the movie I watched that night that was, <laughs> uh, you know, that came on. Um, 
so since then I've been a huge Ghibli fan, gone through all their movies. Um, but like Tom, I think I like their realistic ones more than the fantasy ones. So from up on Poppy Hill is probably my favorite. Um, although that's, hmm. um, Hayao's son, Goro. Um, hmm. and then the wind rises, I really liked, um, but yeah, and audience, um, as always with an animated film, I always recommend the first time you watch it, do it, watch it in your native language. So for most of us in English audio, so that you get to see all the art. Um, I wouldn't worry too much about the performances because it's not two competing performances. It's it's still just one performance over the, the art. So I, w- I would recommend watching that um, with the English audio. How about you, Nick? How's your watch? This was my first watch of this film and I finished it earlier today so hopefully it'll be right in my mind for next week uh not too much of a lag time sometimes uh, you get a few weeks in between and uh, the details start to get fuzzy i thought this was my second studio ghibli film but after tom's conversation i forgot that from up on poppy hill was also studio ghibli i was just thinking of spirit away which i thought was a very interesting film i do think i lean towards the more fantastical but i have a very limited uh, audience or example of Studio Ghibli. So that may change. I did enjoy from up on Poppy Hill as well. But spe- specifically speaking about this film, one of the things that really jumped out at me was immediately the pace. Like you jump right into it. Like you, there's no like a background of this people or that is like, boom, something's coming for us. We're under attack. And then the portrayal of violence or how the animation style portrays violent acts is very different than what the animation was that we grew up with with dynamite and clouds and people falling off it just completely different style i don't want to say realistic because it was over the top but kind of jumped out at me so that was one of the biggest things i know that's like one element of a a larger film here but that was one that really just how how gross the demon was right from the beginning just everything right from the start. And then when he gets infected, and again, this isn't super spoilers, it's earlier in the film. And he just like starts shooting people's arms and heads off with arrows. I mean, it's just like, whoa. (laughs) So there's a lot of other things going on in this film, but that really did jump out with me. The other, or I should say the last thing is, I questioned the title. Why is this Princess Mononoke, not Prince Ashitaka or something else? Or the spirit of the forest you know why is that the title but i guess we can get into that next week princess mononoke is available on hbo max at the time of this recording conan the barbarian i was trying to mess around with um, AI art to come up with Conan the Librarian, but I was not getting very <laughs> good responses. I was like, oh, this is going to be so funny. I'm going to send this out to the guys. And I, I didn't get any really mm-hmm. good results that were... Take two catalog cards looking yeah. at each other. <laughs> there was one, I was expecting to have him like in a library with a bunch of books. And there were some that were like playing with it, but not not good enough. You know? I hate that Dewey Decimal System. Yeah. If I ever uh, find that guy. <laughs> if I find that Dewey... <laughs> He's done for. <laughs> Be quiet. It's a library. <laughs> I don't like. I don't know where his. Uh, have you ever heard other Austrians talk? They don't. They don't sound like this. 
the Jar Jar Binks. Get to the chopper. <laughs> yeah, like it's apparently a very uh, mephlodious, it's a very mellifluous sounding accent. It doesn't sound anything like that. Boom. He was overdue. Not, not, not to get into the episode, but there were some good. Ah, ooh, ah, yeah. In this movie. I'll bring this book back. All right. Sorry. Join a young Arnold Schwarzenegger and a somewhat younger James Earl Jones as they battle over the power of steel versus flesh. Spoiler alert, Arnold wins. Wait, James Earl Jones was younger than Arnold Schwarzenegger? I said a somewhat younger, like like younger than he is known for being. Oh, does I that, see. You're not comparing. That, not the, comparing the Jones two. If that, if that wasn't clear. I see. Okay. No, I understood. I understood. Okay. Okay. okay, okay it okay. was weird that Arnold Schwarzenegger... <laughs> Uh, got younger than in other words didn't they aren't they both the same amount of years back <laughs> but that's, that's <laughs> I think it's funny James Earl Jones didn't change or whatever so. yeah <laughs> no well he did change but like that's his I guess somewhat younger form <laughs> like have you ever seen James Earl Jones as a young man like a truly young man no yeah. he's always looked like James Earl Jones yeah 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 I don't know how he fit into that Darth Vader costume, though. <laughs> Still. <laughs> the buzzard, huh? Yeah, yeah. He bites the neck off. I thought I didn't know if you thought it was a... He punches a candle in the face. <laughs> if I had a choice... Unprovoked. Between 10,000 Newtons in the face and my throat being eaten by Arnold Schwarzenegger... It would actually be a tough choice. I don't know. <laughs> if he punched a person, that person would be dead. Period. Instant death. But if he eats your throat like that. Just a flesh wound. <laughs> that buzzard was dead. But I'm not a buzzard. I thought that was going to lead somewhere, him killing the buzzard. I thought it was going to result in him somehow getting out of the situation he was in. But it was just a buzzard eating scene 